I am so encouraged that almost every time I step into this pulpit, somebody is whistling at me. And uh, I'm telling you, when you look like this, you take any compliment you can get. You know what I'm saying? Um, it is it's good to be with you this morning and um, excited to share from Scripture with you. Um, this morning, if you, if you have your Bibles, we're going we're gonna to start in uh, Galatians chapter 4. Um, but let me just let me just go ahead and set you up and, and prepare your uh, fingers and your in your minds. We are not going to be staying in Galatians chapter four. We are literally going from Genesis to Revelation today. Okay, um, so you will want to make sure that your notes are are readily available from your bulletin or from the YouVersion app. Uh, our pastor and his family are uh, taking the day off uh, just to get some recoup and refreshment here before the holidays. And so uh, we, uh, we miss them, but he will be back here with us next Sunday. And uh, we are excited for his return. I want to say this to all of our uh, Christian Life family, whether you're here in Brown Chapel or online, I want to wish you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. We are so excited about, I know it sounds crazy to say that you're excited about anything in this year, but I'm telling you, we are excited about the future. We truly are. And so before we jump into the Lord's Prayer and into Scripture, I just want to give a special shout out today. I want to say a very uh, happy birthday to my dad. His birthday is today. And to my brother-in-law, Steve. I'm so grateful for those two men uh, being a part of my life and uh, thankful for them. Amen. Let's jump into the Lord's Prayer together. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen and amen. A few years ago, I say a few years ago, it was probably about the year 2009, 2008, something like that. My wife, Joy, and I, we had, we had served at a church in Panama City, Florida for about seven or eight years at that point. And uh, we were youth pastors there and just really loved that church. But around 2009, we started sensing that the Lord was preparing us for something more than what we were doing. We felt like God was stirring. There was like this sense of anticipation that God is about to transition us from where we are to something that is new and and thrilling and exciting. And um, we were so excited. We didn't know what that looked like. We didn't know if God was going to move us across the nation or to another country. We didn't know if God was going to, you know, just blow fresh wind where we were or if the Lord was going to call us to plant a church. We just didn't know what God was doing, but we definitely felt, both of us felt this urgency. We felt the sense that God is getting ready to do something new in our lives. He's taken us to another place. And we, we talked about it and we agreed that, you know, we felt like this is what the Lord was doing. But as the, the days and the weeks and the months, and ultimately after about a year and a half, two years had passed by, literally nothing had happened. Nothing had changed. And it was as if we had went from like this super 
anticipation, this moment of exhilaration that God is about to fulfill something that he wants to do in us. And all of a sudden, over the course of time, that just kind of dwindled. And we, you know, we, we were fine. I mean, we weren't like super discouraged. It was a little discouraging because we felt like maybe we didn't hear from the Lord correctly or whatever. But we had really just gotten to the place and we said, well, Father, we thought that you were going to do something different. But if not, we're okay. We love these people. We love Panama City. We're, we're willing to stay here for the rest of our life. We just want to obey. Whatever that looks like, we, we just want to obey. And so all this time had gone by, and so our, our you know, excitement kind of had dwindled down. And then literally, I'm, I'm talking almost two years after this initial excitement, all of a sudden, out of the blue, and when I say out of the blue, I, I literally mean out of the blue, out of nowhere, out of me not calling anybody or uh, putting feelers out or anything like that, out of the blue, my phone started blowing up. I started getting calls literally from churches all around the nation. I got calls from churches in, in Florida, in Arizona, in Wisconsin. Um, I mean, just, just literally everywhere. My wife, it was so funny. When we got the call from Wisconsin, it was a friend of mine. It was a friend of mine, and, and I trust the friend, and they're a part of a, a healthy, vibrant, growing church. And I told my wife, I said, baby, I said, I know that we said no to, to these other places. We didn't feel like the Lord was in it, but, you know, this, this, church, this is a very promising opportunity for our family. And she said, well, where's the church located? And I said, I said well, it's in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And my wife looked at me only the way that a wife can look at a husband. <laughs> and she said, babe... She said, you can pray and fast all you want, but I'm not moving to Canada, right? <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, okay, well, I've heard from the Lord now, and uh, this is a moment. But, but truly, started getting these phone calls just out of the blue. And one of the phone calls that we received was from Christian Life. And it was from, uh, I got a phone call from Pastor Darren in April of 2011. I got a phone call from, from PD. And really, Pastor Darren and, and Alex, uh, who oversees SESL, they were literally the only connections that we had to Christian life. I didn't know anybody from this church. I had never, I, frankly, I just never heard of Christian life, but, but I had a connection. And Pastor Darren called and he said, hey, listen, there, it looks like we may have an opening uh, opportunity and you and Joy have, have been on our hearts and our minds. We, we're, we're not saying we're ready to offer you this, but we, we just want to see if you would be open to have a conversation to see if maybe this is a good fit for your family or a good fit for our church. And all of a sudden, I had gone from the super excitement a couple of years ago to this lull and kind of like, not complacency, but just a settledness of just like, Lord, it is what it is, you know? And all of a sudden, when I start getting these phone calls, all of a sudden, that anticipation rises again. And I'm so excited, God, you are going to fulfill what you said you were going to fulfill. And then I get off the phone with Pastor Darren, well, we, we come to a realization and we understand that because of, of different schedules and all these kind of things, that it's literally going to be a couple of months before Joy and I can come to Columbia, even to visit, to meet Pastor Chitty and, you know, all this. It's going to be a couple of months. And so my anticipation and my excitement had grown, and then all of a sudden, over the course of the next couple of months, it had kind of started to dwindle again. And this is why. Joy and I had been a part of that church for almost nine years, I guess, at that point. And the church had, was an incredibly healthy church when we went, and there was just, there were some things that had happened, some changes that happened, and the church went through a really difficult season, three or four years of just difficult, difficult season. And I don't have like a, a savior's complex or anything, and I'm not, I don't think I'm overstating this, but, but I do think that the Lord used Joy and I to help strengthen the church during that time. 
And so as this, this lull comes about where, where we get this phone call, we're excited about the possibility of Christian life, but we can't really go and visit to see how everything feels. I'm in the middle of this season right here, which was literally, it was probably the darkest season of my life. And the reason it was so dark is because I was so torn. I was so loyal and so committed to these people. I, in my opinion, leaving these people in Panama City was the equivalent of abandoning these people to go to something that may be better for my family. And I felt so much guilt and so much, I, I just struggled that entire summer as we were walking through this process. And so from the, from the phone call from Pastor Darren where I was so excited to this kind of lull season, all of a sudden, the day that we are planning to drive up to Panama City earlier in that summer, um, or excuse me, to Columbia, uh, I was speaking, I was doing a, a session at our district, at the Assemblies of God District in, in West Florida, and I was talking to other pastors and different things. And um, I did my session, and um, afterwards I, I went to the door, and I was just shaking everybody's hand as they left, thanking them for enduring everything that I had just uh, said. And um, I noticed that there was a gentleman he was an older gentleman. At this point, he was probably in his early 70s, mid-70s at that point. And I could tell that he wasn't exiting. Like, he was kind of waiting. I, I could tell he wanted to talk to me. And so as most of the people had kind of gone out of, the, out of the building, I kind of stepped to the side, and I, and I shook his hand and introduced myself, and we exchanged pleasantries. And then um, he said, you know, when you were teaching today, it reminded me of da-da-da-da-da. And he went off on this, this story about, you know, these connections and all these kind of things. And as he's telling the story, now listen to me, I'm at a place right now that is so deep and dark for me that I, I truly cannot discern the will of God, what God is calling me to. And I am typically not the type of person that asked God to give me a sign, you know, if I need to go to, you know, buy low or food lion today. I'm typically not that person. But I'm telling you, I was in such a, a place, a, a deep place of desperation that I was literally crying out to the Lord, Father, send me a sign. Send me something that is undeniable. Send me, show me something that, that is beyond my comprehension, something that I could not orchestrate myself, you know. And so I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to this gentleman, and in the midst of the conversation, he says, you know what, that reminds me of something. He says, when I was younger, he said, I had the privilege to disciple a lot of young ministers through the years, some a week and some, you know, years, just depending on the relationship. And he said, you know what, it reminds me of this one guy. Have you ever heard of Stephen Chitty? <laughs> and... I literally, in the moment, it, it, I wasn't just speechless, I was almost breathless. Because frankly, I had never heard of Pastor Chitty. I didn't know, before this conversation with Pastor Aaron, I, I didn't know who Pastor Chitty, I, I never had any connection. I didn't know that Pastor and I were born in the same city. I didn't know that, that we were a part of the same district as ministers. I, I just didn't know all these things, I didn't know him. And I looked at the man and I said, um, as a matter of fact, I said, when I leave this building right now, I'm getting in the car with my family and we're driving to South Carolina to meet him for the very first time. I said, so yeah, I've heard of him, but I don't know him, right? And so the man is just like, oh, that is amazing. You're gonna love Steve and you know, all this kind of things. And he, he pulls out this pen from his pocket. And he says, this is, this is a, a pen. I want you to give this to Pastor Chitty. It, it has my church name and my name and it has my phone number. Just give it to him and tell him I said, you know, hello or whatever. And, and so I'm just taking the pen and I'm kind of walking away like, God, what are you doing? You know, and, <laughs> and um, 
So I get in, we get in the vehicle, I'm telling my wife, she is like, what? No. I'm like, yes. All of a sudden, the anticipation, the excitement rises. God is in the midst of this, right? That's what I'm thinking. And so we come and we have a tremendous visit, and there were so many little things like that, so many things that people either said or we witnessed in, the, in our short visit here in Columbia that we just knew that the Lord was in this. And so we go back home, but for whatever reason, pastor makes us, you know, the offer to come on staff here at the church. But um, for a lot of different reasons, we had some responsibilities to fulfill in Florida uh, for, for another couple months. And so we were going to be there for another couple months. And I'm telling you, all the excitement and the adrenaline and all that, when we got back to Florida, it kind of dwindled away. It dwindled away because my heart, once again, was so torn. You know, and I, I was focused on this, but I wanted to focus on this, but I couldn't. And, you know, there were just so many dynamics. And I remember when we finally made the move, I remember we got in a truck, a moving truck on Sunday, and, or excuse me, on Monday, and we drove up to South Carolina. I remember on the drive, again, this sense of anticipation that God is about to fulfill what he had promised a couple of years ago, that he is taking us to do something new, right, and something exciting. And I remember just, just the, the feeling once we finally got here, just like, whew, there, was, there was an alleviation, but there was also, you know, exhilaration because we're going we're gonna to do this. And, and that whole experience taught me, it taught me so many things. And I'm sure that you've been through life experiences like that, that have taught you so many things. But let me just tell you really quickly three things that this experience taught me. Number one, well, let me just say this. It's not here, but let, number one, I hate waiting. Okay? I hate to wait. And I'm sure you do too, but beyond that, let me share with you a couple of things that the Lord taught me during this season. Number one, he taught me that while I am waiting, he is always working. He is always doing something behind the scenes, even when I can't realize it. The second thing I learned during the season is that waiting and anticipating are two very different things. Vastly different things. Anticipation usually deals in the realm of excitement and joy and vision and looking deep into the future, whereas waiting usually encompasses things like frustration and irritability, and it just feels like things are being drugged out forever. So I learned that there's a difference, but probably the most important thing I learned out of all this is that life is filled with both waiting and anticipating. And there is a rhythm to life and an ebb and flow in the midst of waiting and anticipating before the fulfillment actually comes to fruition, right? So there's this, and, and you know this, right? Most people know this. If you have ever been pregnant, or if you know someone who has ever been pregnant, you understand this ebb and flow of like excitement and then ugh, and then joy and then ugh. You know, you know this, right? Especially if you've ever dealt with like infertility and you go and you realize you take a pregnancy test as positive, all of a sudden your joy rises, you were so excited about everything. And then like for the next like three months, nothing happens. Right? I mean, you're gaining a little bit of weight, but besides, that's nothing to be excited about, right? So you're gaining some weight, so you kind of go into this lull after the initial excitement, but then about midway through the pregnancy, you go back to the doctor and you discover that you're not just having a baby, but you're having a baby girl or you're having a baby boy, right? And all of a sudden the excitement rises again and you do a gender reveal party and burn down a forest or something, you know, you, you get so excited, right? 
because it's not just a baby, but it's a baby girl, you know? And so you're, you're excited again, but then the next like 14 or 15 weeks, it kind of, the anticipation kind of wears off again, right? And then somewhere in this magical era of time, probably around week 35, 36, all of a sudden, the anticipation is not just somewhere, it is gone, it is utterly gone. And it has turned to complete frustration. And mama is sitting there saying, I am miserable, get this kid out of me, right? That's about week 35, 36. But all of a sudden, when that water breaks, or when they induce that labor, all of a sudden the joy and the excitement and the anticipation floods your soul again because you know that everything you've been waiting for for so long is about to come to fulfillment, right? And so we understand that there is this ebb and flow to these, this dynamic here. And the reality is, is that that's not just an individual experience, right? That, that's, like, that's like a human experience for everybody. But even on a more macro scale, it's kind of a universal experience that Israel dealt with when it came to Messiah, when it came to the arrival of Jesus, right? So you remember in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve, they rebel against God, they, they sin against God. They begin to see the destruction of the perfection that God had created. Everything is now distorted. They have been issued consequence. They understand the penalty of their sin for the generations to come, right? This all transpires in like Genesis chapter 3. But I want to remind you that in Genesis chapter 3, there's also a moment where God realizes that these people, if I lead them to themselves, they will not survive. I have got to give them a token of anticipation for something better to come. And so in the same chapter, listen to me, in the same chapter where they sinned against the Lord willingly and virtually ruined it for all of us, in the same chapter, the Lord comes to Adam and Eve and he says, listen to me, I know it feels like chaos and I know that you're, you're struggling with depression. I know that you're frustrated in this moment because of what you have done. But let me just remind you, Genesis 3.15, let me just remind you that there's coming a day where I'm going to send a man and he is going to come and set things right with sin. And listen to me, he's not just going to be the remedy for sin, but he is going to crush the head of the serpent that caused the sin. Listen to me, within moments of the utter destruction of the universe, basically, when sin had entered the galaxy, all of a sudden God says, I understand this, but this is what I want you to understand. I am still about to do something that your mind cannot comprehend in this moment. And all throughout Israel's history, there was like this ebb and flow of waiting and anticipation and waiting and anticipation. You will see, um, you know, a new king rise up and he'll be a, a man of God and the people will flock and they'll have so much hope and they'll, they'll praise the Lord and there'll be this great anticipation for all that God is going to do. And then all of a sudden that king dies and a bad king comes in and their anticipation and excitement just hits low and they're waiting, they're waiting. Then a prophet will step on the scene and he'll give a prophetic utterance about the Messiah and the people are riled and they're excited. This could be any moment. The Messiah could be born now. And then years and years and years pass and they just go back into this waiting and get focused on everything that's wrong and just up and down, up and down, up and down. And the reality is this, is that all throughout this time in Israel's history, the very thing that they are waiting on is the initial rival 
of Jesus. The initial arrival of the Messiah, we call it Advent, right? We hear that word thrown around a good bit, but the, the word Advent, literally it means the arrival or it means the coming or the showing up of someone or something. And so all throughout Israel's history, they are, they are longing for this moment when the Messiah will come. They're longing for this moment. And as they're longing for the moment, as they're waiting, they don't realize it. But the Father is working. He's taking things on a global context. And he is piecing things together and he is setting things in motion. And then all of a sudden, listen to what Paul wrote about this event. All of a sudden, Paul says this. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, that God sent forth his son, Jesus, born of a woman, Mary, born under the law of Moses, to redeem those, me and you, who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters of God. And so even through Israel's history, you see this ebb and flow until the fulfillment in the fullness of time. When God had planned in the perfection of his providence that he would send his son in the fullness of time, even through the ebb and flow of it all. And this is the first arrival of Christ, right? It's what we call, it's a big theological word, we call the incarnation of Christ. It's what John said about the incarnation. He, he described it in this way. He said, so the word of God, Jesus, became human and made his home among us and he was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, right? So John is saying, look, this is the fulfillment of everything that's been prophesied for all of these thousands of years. This is the fulfillment of it, that he would be born of a virgin, that he would literally be God with human. He would be God with us. He would be Emmanuel, that he would live a sinless life, right? That he would die a criminal's death in our place, a substitutionary death, all of these things. This is what Paul says, look, the arrival has come. It has happened. That's what we're celebrating on Friday is the initial arrival of the Messiah. The reality, though, is this, is that oftentimes we can get so caught in what has happened that we forget and we, we choose not to focus on what will happen. And so let me just remind you of this. Ever since the first arrival of Jesus, the church as a whole, the global church, has anticipated his second arrival, right? We've anticipated, we don't call it an arrival because he doesn't come physically to the earth, but we call it the rapture of the church, right? I remember growing up, I, I was terrified of the rapture. I was terrified. I was so afraid of being left behind, right? I was so afraid. And that was before the books were even written, right? I was like 10, 11, 12 years old. I would go to church with my mom and, and or my parents, and, and I would watch after worship was done and prayer and offering and everything, I would watch. I would watch the preacher. And as he went to the pulpit, I would see where his fingers were at in the Bible so that he can open it. And when he got into the pulpit, when he opened the Bible, if he went anywhere near the back half of the Bible, I was out. I'd tell mom, I'd be like, mama, my stomach hurts. You know, I, I, gotta, I, gotta, I gotta go outside. I'm, I'm gonna be sick, I think. Or I'd, I'd, find, I'd find some reason to get out. I'd go and I'd stay in the bathroom until somebody came and got me. I mean, I was terrified of the rapture. But I, I wanna remind us today that in the same way that Christmas was not a myth, the rapture of the church 
is not a myth either. It's a reality that is coming whether we believe it or not and whether we want it or not. There is a time that's coming. Paul, this is how he describes in, in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, for the Lord Jesus himself would descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the air together. We will be raptured in the air together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will ever be with the Lord. And the way that Jesus described the rapture of the church, he described it in such a way as, as if it could happen at any moment, right? When you read through Matthew's account of the gospel and Jesus' teaching, Jesus is saying, listen, there, there will be people that are working together and one will turn this way and one will turn that way and when this one turns back, the other one's gone. It could, it's a moment that can transpire at, at any moment. Paul, in his lifetime, Paul was so convinced of the rapture of the church that he was convinced it would happen in his lifetime before he went to heaven through the means of death. Right? So the second arrival of Christ should not ever be overlooked. But it's not just the second, uh, you know, the rapture of the church that, that we have longed for and anticipated. But it's the third arrival, the third advent of Christ, which we call the second coming. Now, if, if you're a guest or you have no clue what I'm talking about, you're like, this guy is freaked out. He is so weird. Um, let, me, let me just, theologically, let me just kind of paint a real quick picture. This is what we believe. We believe that at any moment in time, that, or excuse me, we believe that first there was an incarnation of Christ about 2,000 years ago. We believe that Jesus took on human form. After his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension into heaven, we believe that we are in, imminently looking for the time of the rapture, his second, his second arrival where he's going to come and we're going to meet him in the air. But as a third layer, what we believe is there is a second coming of Christ, which we call it that, but basically what it means is that we believe that there's coming a moment where Jesus isn't just going to meet us in the air, but he is physically going to establish his kingdom on this earth. And he will, not, not figuratively and not spiritually speaking, but he will physically be the king of the universe and his throne will be established here. So we believe that there will be an establishment and what we believe is typically, you know, the rapture happens and there's this time of tribulation and then the second coming where Christ descends and, and comes to settle all these things, okay? Now, when we talk about these things, it's important to understand that Christian history, throughout Christian history, there has been a lot of difficulty. There's been a lot of really dark times. There's always been suffering. There's always been persecution. There's always been uh, people that were trying to rise their, their face against Christianity. There's been heresy of false teachers trying to come into the church. There's always been a struggle within the Christian church. And so a couple of hundred years in, uh, following the, the ascension of Jesus, a couple of hundred years following this, the church leaders realized that this is a dark time for people. And so what they decided to do is they decided to create what we call the Christian calendar or the church calendar. Now, the purpose of the church calendar was to be a calendar, right? It was to remind people of when Easter is, is to remind them when the day of Pentecost is and when Christmas is and, and all these kind of things. It served the purpose of literally just being a calendar, okay? But it was more than that. Because what you will find when you look at the church calendar is that there is a section there entitled Advent season. 
It is the season of Advent. It's the season of the arrival. And right now, here in the, the U.S., right now, we're in Advent. Basically, what Advent is, is it is four weeks leading up to, to Christmas Day. That is the season of Advent. Now, here in the U.S., most people, when they celebrate Advent, it is all focused on Christmas. It is all focused on the initial incarnation of Jesus, that he came born of the Virgin, and it should be focused on that. And so as the church leaders prepared this document, they said, listen, we want to stir the affections of people as we lead up to Christmas so that they can remember that God came, right, in human form. We want to stir the anticipation of the people. But can I tell you, in those four weeks, only two of those weeks are meant to focus on the first coming of Jesus. The other two weeks were meant to focus on the next coming of Jesus. The reality is that the, the average person doesn't realize we just kind of see Advent as something to focus on the Christmas season, and we should focus on the Christmas season. But I would say far be it from us that we only focus on the first coming of Christ and not give proper attention to the further comings of Christ. And so today, uh, listen, all I want to do, all I want to do in the, in the little bit of time that we got remaining is I want to kind of stir your anticipation. Not only for Christmas, we're going to talk about Christmas, but I want to stir your anticipation to remember that this Christmas season isn't just about the fact that Jesus came, but it's a reality that Jesus is coming again. It's the reality that we are not left to ourselves. Jesus said, if I were just going to leave you, I would have told you, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. If I tell you I'm coming again, I'm coming again. Right? And so during this Christmas season, we set our affection on the, on the child, on the baby Jesus, but we also need to send our affection to the one, the king, who sits on the throne. And remember that he is coming for us again. And so today what I want to do is just, I want to walk through, don't be intimidated by the notes. I'm going to breeze through most of these. I'm not even going to give commentary to most of these. But what I want to do is I want to help us remember not only what has happened in the birth of Jesus, but I want to equally kind of contrast that with what is coming in the second coming of Jesus. And so today, if you want to take a look at your notes, I want to, uh, to jump in real quickly here and remind us of 11 or 12 very important things that, that I feel like every Christian should remember. The first thing that I think every Christian should remember is that though Jesus first came to fulfill mid-time prophecy, he will return to fulfill end-time prophecy. So, all throughout the Old Testament, hundreds and hundreds of prophecies about the Messiah's first arrival are revealed. And in the incarnation of Jesus, in his first birth and in the, the life, or first birth, in his only birth, in the first arrival of Jesus, he fulfilled dozens and dozens of Throughout his life, Jesus fulfilled more than 300 prophecies through his lifetime from Old Testament scriptures. And so we need to remember that there is a reason we call him Savior and we call him Messiah, we call him Lord, is because he's worthy of it, right? But it's not just that. We've also got to remember that there's coming a time where Jesus, not only did he fulfill prophecy from the Old Testament, but he is coming to fulfill all prophecy of every testament 
when he comes again. He is going to fulfill everything spoken in the book of Daniel and Thessalonians and Revelations. You name it, Jesus is coming to fulfill all in time prophecy. And we should be excited about that. Number two, though Jesus came through his, though Jesus first came through his mother, he will return with his bride. The prophet Isaiah, and listen to me, this first arrival of Jesus, it, it, in the New Testament, it speaks of the prophets of the Old Testament. And the Bible says that the prophets of the Old Testament longed for this coming, man. They longed for the arrival of the Messiah, and they longed to see the things that those people saw in Jesus. They longed for these things. But Jesus, although he first came through his mother, the, the Bible gives this beautiful prophetic utterance when Isaiah writes here, he says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This beautiful um, uh, prophetic utterance is given about the first coming of Christ. But I want to read to you from Revelation 19 about the second coming of Christ. The Bible says that the armies of heaven were following Jesus. They were riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, which represents the fact that our sins have been purged under the blood of Jesus, and we are now white as snow. But I'm telling you, we cannot forget this moment that as Christ descends and he comes to make war with Antichrist and all the ends of the earth, we cannot forget that he is not alone in this venture, that we are with him and that we are his bride and that we are being used for the glory of God even in all this. Number three, though Jesus first came as a helpless child, he will return as a triumphant king. Listen, we can't be mistaken here. I want to read to you real quickly what Paul said about Jesus' first coming. He said, though Jesus was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, and he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. So Jesus, being God, set aside his divine power and his divine privileges so that he could come and identify with humanity, right? Now, let's be clear. We can't be confused about this. Jesus even made it clear that I can call on my power anytime that I want to, right? Jesus said, look, if I want a, a legion of angels to come and rescue me, I'll do it right now if I wanted to, but I'm not going to because I'm going to fulfill the call, right? But let me, let me kind of illustrate it like this. So, so I, I love my family. Like I said, I have like a dozen kids or something like that. I lose count. But I have, I have so many kids and we, we are a very affectionate family and we love and we tickle and we kiss and hug and, and we, we wrestle. And I love to wrestle with my kids. But it would be pretty bizarre me trying to connect with my children and identify with my children. If I took Emery, who was three, and I was just like, ah! You know, and I, I body slammed her and, you know, just kind of threw her across the room and to the wall. No normal person would think that's okay, right? They're like, oh, you're trying to connect with your kid by throwing her through the wall, right? That's, that's bizarre, right? In like manner, what I do when I'm wrestling with my three-year-old Emery is that I lay some of my strength aside. I accommodate her strength so that I can connect with her relationally through strength. And so all Jesus was doing, he was saying, listen, 
It's not that I can't call on this, but what it is is I'm saying I'm going to set it aside so I can accommodate you and I can relate to you so that I can become human with you in this moment, right? So there is this, there is this moment where Jesus was, was virtually like a helpless child. He was born as a, as a, as a, helpless, as a helpless infant. But we need not be confused, and we need not confuse the humanity of Jesus or forsake the humanity of Jesus for the divinity of Jesus. And we need not forget that though he was a helpless child, he is a triumphant king. Number four, though Jesus came in a manger, he will return from his throne. Number five, though Jesus first came in obscurity, when he returns, it will be in full view of the entire world. You realize when Jesus first came, his first arrival, it is not what the people wanted in a Messiah. They wanted a Messiah that was charismatic, which I think Jesus was. But they wanted somebody who was charismatic and political and militant. That's the Messiah we want. We want somebody who's going to come in and to crush the Roman Empire. We want somebody that's going to come and end all of our oppression in the physical sense, right? That's the Messiah what they were looking for, but what they got was a suffering Savior, right? And so, so though there was some confusion in Jesus' first coming as to who he really was, I think it's so important that we remember when he comes again, there's going to be no question. Listen to me. There's not going to be an election. There's not going to be a debate. There's not going to be who, who is really the king of the universe. Uh, you know, well, maybe it's this. Maybe. There's not going to be any legitimate war that breaks out over this issue. It is going to be revealed. Um, this is what, this is what uh, uh, John wrote in, in Revelation. He said, behold, Jesus is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. And they will weep and wail on his account. John's saying, listen, when they see Jesus for who he really is, we are going to wail. Those of us who love Jesus, we are going to wail at the beauty of his coming. But those who do not, they are going to weep and wail at the terror of his coming. And so there is, there is very much a distinction here of Jesus' first arrival, people not really understanding. You realize that for most of Jesus' life, nobody knew who he was. He was relatively unknown for like three decades of his life and only really came to popularity in the last three or four years, right? And so although there's a, a, this situation going on where, where there were question marks, when Jesus comes again, there will be no question who he is, right? And it's going to be an amazing thing for all of us to witness. Number six, though Jesus came being sought by wise men, he will return being sought by discerning men people. So we're aware that when the wise men arrived to Herod, they use incredible wisdom, right? They use incredible wisdom. Herod, Herod is, you know, trying to trap them into all these things, but they use incredible wisdom. And they arrive and they say, we've seen this cosmic thing that's going on. And it's, it's been spoken that, that there is a king of the Jews and we're coming to worship him. They were not Christians. They were not Jews. They were, they were foreigners. They were pagans. But they were, they were wise enough to understand that something otherworldly is going on, and we need to give attention to it. In the second coming of Jesus, can, can I remind you of what Paul wrote to Timothy when he was talking about the end times? This is what he said. He said, the Spirit clearly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits 
and things taught by demons. Listen to me, I need to say this just, just as quickly and as politely as I can. Just because someone has a pulpit and a Bible does not mean that they are teaching the truth of God's word. Can we say that? Listen to me. I'm telling you, we're living in an era where there's an increasing, an increasing of people falling away from the faith, but, but not just that, following a false faith, following the teaching and the doctrines of demons. Let me prove it to you. Earlier this year, um, in, in 2020, there was a LifeWay research study done. And LifeWay, they have a legitimate, they do tons of demographics and they do thousands of people. So it's, it's not like they had 12 people in a room and did this huge study. They, thousands and thousands of people, legitimate um, survey. And this is what their research found, that 65% of, of, of self-identified evangelical Christians, so 65% of people that say that they are evangelical Christians, do not believe that Jesus is God, but believe that Jesus is the first creature created by God. Listen, 65%. Of the, listen, by definition, you are not an evangelical Christian. Because evangelical Christians believe that Jesus is God, not created by God. And I'm telling you, I, don't, I hurt for these people. I'm not, a, I'm not angry. All I'm saying is this, is that they have been swayed and they have followed deceptive teachings and they have embraced things that are not the truth of the word of God. And listen to me, we ourselves need to be cautious as we live in these last days. As we approach the second coming of our Lord, we need to be discerning men and women right? The Bible says this uh, through the tribulation period. The Bible says that, that there was deception. They were given over to such deception that if it were even possible that the people that were the elect of God might have been deceived. Tremendous deception. And so my call is to say we need to be a people of the book. Not a people that just hear people talk about it, but we need that. But we need to be a people of the book so that we can verify what people are saying about the book. So it's very important that we be wise and discerning. I am going to blitz through this quickly. Number seven, Jesus first came under the threat of a tyrant, but he will return to remove the threat of all tyrants. Number eight, though Jesus first came in a time that was dark, he will return in the darkest of times. This will fulfill not only, I believe that Isaiah 9 verse 2 is a dual prophecy. It, it was meant for one time and another. When the Bible says this, that the people who, who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. I believe that was for the first arrival and the next arrival. Number nine, though Jesus came riding on a donkey, he will return riding on a stallion. Number 10, though Jesus came with a crown of thorns, he will return with many crowns of glory. Number 11, and finally, we get ready to wrap up here. Though Jesus first came as a lamb, he will return as a lion. The people had anticipated for thousands of years this coming. And the prophet John the Baptist, he steps up one day as he sees Jesus walking. And he declares, as he sees Jesus walking for him, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Paul would say the only way that we have peace with God is through the man Jesus. There is only one mediator 
between man and God. And it is the man Jesus. The first purpose, part of the first purpose of his coming was to be a sacrificial lamb to make peace between us and God. The second coming, he will return as a lion. The first time he came to take away sin, when he comes as a lion, he will come to judge sin. I think it's so important that we not over-sanitize Jesus, right? We, we need not be mistaken. He is meek, and he is mild, and he is lowly and humble of heart, and he is kind, and he is gentle. But I want to remind you that Revelation 19.11 says, but that in righteousness he judges and he makes war. And his eyes are like flames of fire. And a sword proceeds out of his mouth to make war against the unjust. And there's coming a moment where this lion, he's not going to change from a lamb to a lion. He's always going to be the lamb of God. But he's also always going to be the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so today, I told you I was going to get through that quick. I asked Pastor Glenn to do something real special, a special request for me. And I hope it's, um, I hope it's meaningful for you. There was a, a song that came out of the Brownsville Revival years and years ago. And I remember, I wasn't even a Christian during the Brownsville Revival, but afterwards I remember... Um, listening to one particular song. And the song, for whatever reason, it just had a way of like provoking anticipation in my soul for the coming of the Lord. It just, it just did something. It, it stirred something within me. So here in a minute, Pastor Glenn and, and the worship team, they're going to come and we're going we're gonna to sing this song together. But before we do that, let me, let me just give you really quickly three Christian life lessons. And then we're going we're gonna to wrap up real quickly. Number one, let me encourage you to keep your eyes on the things of heaven, not just the things of earth. Now listen, we're not denialists here, right? We live in the earth. We have to deal with things that are on this planet. We have to deal with the difficult, we have to deal with this stuff. We're, we're not denying any of that stuff. But what I wanna remind you is that we need to be people that although we realize this reality, we set our attention and our gaze on the realist reality, which is that of heaven. Right? And so I want to encourage you, keep your attention, not just on the things of earth, but on the things of heaven. Number two, I want to encourage you to encourage one another with this hope. Right? We, listen to me, church, we have, we have lost, not, not we, I'm saying Christendom across time, we have lost this. Paul, Paul's words over and over again, he would, he would talk about the struggle and the hardship, and then he would say, but there is a hope that's coming. And encourage one another with this hope, right? So I like, it's so funny. Sometimes I'll, I'll be talking to my, my friends and my daughter, one of my daughters is like 19 and I got three other daughters coming and a son and all this. And, you know, all my guy friends are like, dude, you got four daughters? Like, number one, how are you going to pay for their weddings? Number two, like, what are you going to do when boys show up, right? And I simply say this, I'm praying for rapture. I say it all the time, <laughs> right? I'm praying for rapture. And if not, I trust the Lord, but I'm praying for rapture, right? And I kind of say it as a joke. I mean, I mean it, but I say it to be funny. But I'm telling you, in, in the first couple of centuries of the church, it wasn't a joke. It was a reality, 
It was like, look, this is real hardship. And listen to me, church, we have faced hardship in this year that has been unprecedented. We, like, like it, it has been a game changer for our world. Okay, it really has this past year. But can I tell you that this is nothing compared to what's to come. And we need to stir the hope of each other by reminding each other, listen, man, I know it's horrible you lost your job. I hate that, and I will do anything I can in this life to help you. I will give, and I will buy, you know, I'll do whatever I can to help you in this life. But man, just remember this, and this isn't folksy, and we gotta make sure that we're not inconsiderate or sound overly spiritual when we say this, okay? Let me just, we gotta make sure that we don't do insensitivity. But let me just say this, there's nothing wrong with saying, man, I I hurt for you, and I will help you in any way. But I just want to remind you, man, this is not all that there is. There is a greater hope that's coming, and we're going to be in it together, right? So I want to encourage you to remember to encourage each other. And then number three is just very simply this. I want to encourage you to pray the prayer of John. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Often. Often. To sit before the Lord as we give our litany of issues, which I have a bunch, to sit before the Lord and I say, but even so, Lord, come quickly. Come for your bride. Retrieve us from the hostility. Take us from this darkness. Let us see that great light shine again. Because I'm going to tell you, this year hadn't done anything for us anticipation-wise, right? And I'll say this, we are, we are foolish people if we think that, that any of the things that are on the um, political or, or news or, or anything like that, we are foolish people to think that any of these things are going to change what is the undercurrent of what's going on in our world right now. Because I'm telling you, what's happening in our world is otherworldly. Right? There is a divineness to it, and there is a working of God to work all things out according to his, his perfect plan. And so even in the midst of all that, I say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen?